For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta ah, ah, ah. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born. May all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being and any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, 
our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogako Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Mandushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Welcome. Hello, Charles. It's good to see you. Uh, so uh, today is officially Malcolm. Well, Malcolm. Well, Malcolm too. Martin Luther King Day. Uh, we can uh, we can honor Malcolm today as well. But Martin Luther King Day. Uh, always, I give a talk about who Ma Martin Luther King Jr. really was. Um, so, uh, several of you probably heard me talk about him before on this day. Um, and it, quite a few of you have not. Um, so I always speak on this day, um, about, uh, who he really was not as the sanitized icon, the uh, Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King as Cornell West says, but who, who he really was and how his spiritual teaching remains re relevant to us and to our Bodhisattva practice uh, now and uh, especially this year. So I want to give a um, kind, somewhat uh, shorter version of all of the many, many, many things that I might usually say because I want to talk about how he's especially relevant uh, to us this year and hopefully leave time for discussion. So uh, Dr. King is best known for his I Have a Dream speech that he gave in April 1963 in Washington, D.C., currently under lockdown. Um, we can see uh, this uh, I Have a Dream speech as part of the dream of Western Buddhists. We've just chanted, may all beings be happy, may they be joyous and live in safety. Dr. King said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men or that all people are created equal. Dr. King not only had a dream, but he um, was actually rather militant. He opposed militarism and war. He championed the poor. He spoke strongly for economic justice including equality in healthcare, relevant today in this pandemic in which uh, black people and marginalized people are suffering 
disproportionately. Dr. King was killed while he was organizing a labor union in Memphis for sanitation workers as part of his Poor People's Campaign. So uh, the sanitized version of Dr. King is is a small part of who he was. Uh, He spoke out strongly against the Vietnam War and the United States government foreign policy and militarism. Uh, Dr. King gave a speech, Time to Break the Silence, about the Vietnam War on April April 4th, 1967, in New York City, exactly one year to the day before he was killed. And I don't believe that was a coincidence. He spoke out strongly against the Vietnam War and against the United States foreign policy. Uh, and that was very controversial. It was a great cost to him as a civil rights leader. People in the civil rights movement uh, opposed him speaking out against the war. He said he, had, he said he had no business speaking out against the war, and mainstream media attacked him for doing that. Uh, of course, he wasn't the first uh, black leader to speak out against the war. Muhammad Ali had done so a couple of years before. But he, in that speech, he said, Uh, Dr. King said, a time comes when silence is betrayal. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision, but we must speak. And he said, I must speak clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. So that's pretty strong, pretty strong. Uh, And that's not what you'll hear in the mainstream media that celebrates Martin Luther King today. He said, I must speak clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. He said, the relationship of this ministry, his ministry, to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all people? The good news that was his uh, Baptist gospel, but I would say, Uh, This is parallel to our Buddhist precept of benefiting all beings. This was meant for all people, including people who uh, we have made war against since Vietnam in uh, Central America and in the Mideast. Dr. King said the war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. We as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. He talked in his speech against, against the Vietnam War about eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. He said, quote, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death, unquote. So here we are in 2021. of our federal budget is for military, various military uses. And we have 800 military bases around the world, far more than all the other countries of the world combined. At the same time, uh, Congress says they cannot afford health care or education or housing for much of our population. So maybe we could still say that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is our own government. Dr. King said, 
It's not just the bad actions of bad people, but the appalling indifference of good people that is the problem. So what Dr. King was saying at that time, in his time, 1967, a long time ago, but I think it's still applies. We must respond. So on this day when officially uh, it's a national holiday, uh, we must respond. Dr. King also spoke of love. So he's, you know, the uh, official sanitized version of Dr. King, Martin Luther King, is that he um, had a dream and that he was nonviolent. So it's, uh, it's true that he spoke strongly for nonviolence. He spoke of love. So in 1957, he gave a beautiful talk about love and loving your enemies. He said, quote, some people resign themselves to the fate of oppression. They somehow acquiesce to this thing. But that too isn't the way because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So uh, non-cooperation with evil. And of course, you know, he's using the language of uh, his tradition, Christian Baptist uh, tradition. Um, but he was also friendly with Thich Nhat Hanh. He had, he had uh, in his uh, work against the Vietnam War, he had a lot of interaction with uh, Vietnamese Buddhists. So he was uh, ecumenical. He, he tried to understand. He, he, he appreciated many different faith traditions. Anyway, Non-cooperation with harmfulness, I would say, is as much a moral obligation as cooperating with good and good works and helpfulness. So our times also are challenging. We must not cooperate with oppression and fear. We must support people in our sangha and in our city and our society who are being abused and oppressed. And speak out against injustice. That's what Dr. King called us to do. He also said, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can, can, can do that. So how to respond to the obvious problems and divisions and hatefulness that uh, is uh, obvious in our world and in our country now is for us a great koan. So uh, there are no easy answers, but there, but there is this question. 
But uh, he, uh, Dr. King was very subtle in talking about love and different kinds of love. He said all embrace, embracing unconditional love for all mankind is important. Absolute, it's an absolute necessity. It's an, it's an absolute necessity for human survival, this total love. But this is not about sentimentality or a weak response. So it's not talking about sentimental love. This is about a belief about ultimate reality and the fierce urgency of now. And um, a love that includes strong action. And of course, uh, not just Dr. King. He, we, we think of him, uh, you know, we think of the civil rights movement in terms of Dr. King, but there were many, 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 many people who uh, stood up strongly to uh, water cannons and, and uh, uh, police dogs and uh, brutality during the civil rights movement in the early 60s in the South. Uh, and now we see um, what's going on today. Uh, so I want to bring this all into this current year. And um, in past years, I've read many, many more um, powerful passages from Dr. King's writings. But this year, well, this past year, 2020, and now um, the beginning of 2021, um, well, we've seen many unarmed black people killed by police. Uh, The list is uh, very long, but George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor killed in her bed by police breaking into her apartment the wrong apartment from Jacob Blake, uh, not killed, but paralyzed by being shot in the back seven times, point blank rage by a policeman, all unarmed. So this year we've had a reckoning with racism, as they say. None of this is new. We have a 400 year history in our country We have an economy founded on slavery and racism. And of course, uh, theft of the land of the Native American indigenous people. So this is a deep, deep karma that we're confronting. And I've talked about this many times. uh, And I try not to talk about it too many times because it's painful. This is difficult. We have to face it. And our society is facing it now in many ways. But part of our work, part of our Bodhisattva work is to face it. And on Martin Luther King Day, uh, we need to talk about this. There's good news too. The good news of this past year uh, were the masses of people in the streets demonstrating for Black Lives Matter, for an end to police brutality, demonstrating peacefully, almost completely peacefully, uh, and, and with uh, multiracial demonstrations, many, many uh, white people as well as black people, people of all uh, races, demonstrating peacefully for 
an end to police killings of black people. This is good news. This has caused a uh, national conversation, and we need to talk more about it. And then there's the amazing phenomenon that uh, the pastor at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Atlanta uh, was actually the church of his father, Dr. Martin Luther King Sr., Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., Reverend Raphael Warnock is now a senator, a United States senator. Well, he's, he'll be sworn in in the next couple of days, I guess. Um, so in Georgia, Raphael Warnock was elected senator along with John Ossoff, uh, a Jewish son of immigrants. Um, uh, remarkable. And Raphael Warnock has said that even while he is serving as senator, he pledged to return back to Atlanta on Sundays to preach in the church where Dr. King preached. So there's good news. There is... uh, There is a waking up to uh, this 400-year-old legacy of slavery and racism. And Dr. King's example is also especially important. After the assault on the capital of of the United States on January 6th by a mob of white supremacist fascist terrorists, Those are appropriate terms for what was happening. So uh, this is this is um, this is what we are facing currently. And I want to say that this is not necessarily about all people who voted for Mr. Trump, but certainly. The Republican national leadership, most, not all, but most of the Republican members of Congress uh, voted to overturn the election. Basically, they were voting to, to overturn black voting rights that Dr. King fought and died for. They were denying the election results. And calling it a fraud, they were saying that the election was a fraud. They were saying that Mr. Trump won because they were denying the votes of black people in Detroit, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, and Atlanta. They were saying this election was a fraud because those black people had no right to vote. This country belongs to white people, period. That's what the national leadership of the Republican Party is strongly asserting. And that's what the terrorists, white supremacists who took over the Capitol were saying. And what has been uh, made evident since that attack in, in uh, news footage and in testimony is that... Um, 
the, the Republican, not not all, certainly not all, but many Republican Congress people were complicit in this attack, not only by voting to overturn the, an election that had been certified as, as pro- proper by many courts and by local Republican officials, but also there's uh, there is, you know, there are, there needs to be more investigation, but there's there is uh, evidence that some of the Republican Congress people assisted the terrorists actively. There are Democratic Congress people and senators uh, who are afraid of their colleagues for their lives, and. Uh, what's clear now about that attack is that it came very, very, very close to having some Congress people and senators murdered or taken or kidnapped or held hostage. So this is what we're facing, and there are fears about what might happen. Um, what would these terrorists who are still out there? Some have been arrested, but many have not. What they might do in the next days and weeks and months. So we are a a, uh, a society that is torn apart by the racism that Dr. King was trying to address. We need healing. And... uh, Many people in our Sangha have talked about healing, and the president-elect has talked about healing. But we can't have healing without accountability. Dr. King said there's no peace without justice. So what can we do? Well, this is, a, this is a huge problem. This is a problem that goes back centuries. What can we do? We are a mostly white sangha, not completely. Um, what can we do about this? Well, one thing we can do is to talk about race. not to hide from the problem. And of course, this doesn't mean obsess about it and talk only about it. So part of our, uh, part of our work as a Sangha is to enjoy our practice tradition of uh, Zazen, Dharma, and settling and finding the calm and joy of um, our meditative tradition that helps us to find the calm and stability to face the difficulties of our world. We need that too. And when we will continue to practice and to share Dharma as well. 
but we also need to talk about race sometimes. This is uh, what is in our face in our society. And we need to discuss and expose white supremacy. And again, uh, there's been this uh, very skillful campaign of misinformation And so um, talking with, and many people in our Sangha have friends or relatives who voted for Trump, and I do as well, and I am going to try and talk with my cousin about this. It's difficult, it's painful, and this isn't about arguing or trying to win a debate, it's trying, it's about talking as a, you know, as friends as finding common ground, but to uh, gradually expose the disinformation. It's not about converting people. It's about sharing awareness. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answers. I want to have some discussion about this. As part of this, uh, first of all, on Friday mornings, Dylan Toropov has has, uh, been doing this since, has been organizing this, and a number of people here are part part of this group that uh, have attended uh, Friday morning after morning Zazen at 8 o'clock at 8.30. We've been having discussions about anti-racism. So you're all welcome to attend that 8 o'clock Zazen and 8.30 discussion. They've been very informative discussions. So that's open to everyone. Uh, also, in the um, well, starting this next Sunday, uh, we have a, uh, we're having an, a number of Black women's uh, speakers uh, this next Sunday. Sarah Valentine, who some of you will remember, was uh, active participant in Ancient Dragon when she was teaching at Northwestern. She um, uh, is an author and um, uh, wrote a book called When I Was White. Uh, she was raised in a uh, in a middle class white suburb, and at age well, she had inklings of this before, because she was somewhat darker skinned than her siblings. But she was uh, she found out when she was twenty seven that she had a black father. So she she talks about the issues of self and identity and race, and so anyway, she'll be talking this Sunday. Um, in on February twenty-first, Brisha Wade, who also used to practice here at Ancient Dragon, now lives in Los Angeles, wrote a brilliant book about uh, uh, black grief. She's now works as a chaplain in Los Angeles, uh, as, and so she'll be here February twenty-first. I will be able to share some samples of that book with members of the sangha, and uh, then in. March 14th, these are all in the the schedule. March 14th, Pamela Ayoyatunde, who's a college professor and has connections with a a couple of sanghas, will be speaking. And March 28th, Zenju Earthland Manuel, who is a a Dharma successor of Blanche Hartman in our lineage, will be speaking. So uh, anyway, just to mention that as uh, resources. But um, along with everything else, uh, 
this may help us to uh, think about how to talk about race. So uh, that's what I wanted to say. But I wanted to hear any comments, discussion. Um, if you have reflections on Dr. King or on the current events in the capital or around the country, um, or, um, you know, uh, uh, or varied opinions from what I said, that's fine. Uh, so, uh, please feel free, uh, wait if you, uh, so if you're not visible, if you can raise your hand, if you're visible, if not, you can go to the participants window and, uh, there's a raise hand function at the bottom of that and Wade, maybe you can help me call on people if you see uh, somebody's hand. So please feel free to uh, um, to uh, share the discussion. Thank you. And this is difficult to talk about. But uh, on Dr. Martin Luther King's day, he's calling to us. Wait. Sometimes it feels difficult to know what concrete actions to take. Um, talking is good and and an action, um, but where where does the rubber hit the road if we're doing if we're doing anti-racist work? What does that look like other than um, talking about it? And I don't, I don't imagine that you're going to have an answer. Um, it's kind of open speculation. And... I have a couple of responses, but I'm interested in other people uh, having responses. David Weiner. You're still muted, David. Uh, one thing that I've been doing since uh, January 6th has been almost daily um, messages to my congressperson. And I think that's something that I think is necessary. It may feel futile in some ways, but um, you just have to let people know how you feel, people who represent us in government. Uh, I haven't done it to the newspapers yet, um, but that would be another thing is to to write to a letter to the editor. And those are expressions to the public, but I think it's also important in our daily life. What do I do as a person? How am I acting as a person? I think that's that's important. Um and that's my take on it. Just those three things are very important. 
Um, I do want to go off on a little bit of a tangent and say to everybody, if you have not ever seen it, you can find it on the web. Um, Dr. King gave to me was one of the most phenomenal sermons back in April of 1962 called The Levels of Love. And if you could find it on the internet, I, I most heartily recommend it. And um, and it really represents our Mahayana precept of caring for every being. Um, if you have a chance to read it, please do. Thank you, David. Yeah, Dr. King's talks and um, writings very powerful and resonate quite a bit with uh, with uh, uh, bodhisattva perspectives. I think. Thank you, David. Emily has her hand up. Emily, hi. Hi. Um, well, I think. One, one thing that I, I did read the book um, White Fragility over the summer, which was, which was a great book. But um, one thing that really struck me from reading that is like, um, again, you mentioned we are primarily a manga of, of white people. And like, as a white person, I felt, um, especially the thing that a white person can do is to like, um, can you hear me okay? Um, yeah, it's better now. Like one thing we can do is to not uh, to try to be really uh, cognizant and not engage in like white solidarity and conversations with other white people, and that can look really subtle. But even just like how you talk about other neighborhoods in your city, or um, how you describe events or people, or you know, like that. There's um. I think there's a lot of subtlety there that that can easily go unnoticed because we're so deeply socialized in uh, in it. So that's something I've been thinking about. Thank you. Yes, at the book that um, Dylan's been reading at the beginning of the Friday morning discussions is Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, and that's also very helpful, uh, interesting in terms of defining terms involved in this. Um, Pamela Ayoyatunde, who I mentioned, will be here in March. She's a powerful speaker. She spoke at the last Soto Zen Buddhist Association Teachers uh, Conference, and she recommended to us that we go to a black um, church meetings and and go in our Buddhist garb. And uh, and and just become friends with the p- people in the and go regularly, not just once, and be friends with the uh, become friends with people with people there. Uh, that's harder during COVID. I'm, I uh, may try and do that when I have time, uh, even uh, this way on Zoom. But uh, look, I will definitely try and do that when the pandemic is over. Um, but how to? but trying to find ways to interact. Uh, But also, um, 
even even to talking together as white people, <laughs> how do we become more sensitive to uh, you know how we take our white privilege for granted and how what the differences are anyway uh, uh, yeah, thank you, Emily. Hey, Paul. Um, I think this question of what what is to be done as a Buddhist is a very important question. And I think Dr. King expresses that love, but for a Buddhist it means non-discrimination. We, we, we see others as we see ourselves and we, we treat everyone with the same with the same level of, of, of understanding and, and compassion in the sense that we are all suffering beings, whether you're a, someone of a different ethnicity than, you, than yourself, or, or even someone of a different political persuasion. You know, whether you're a Trumper or, a, or, a, or what is it? You, we have to have an even. We have to not see people as different. We have to see. We have to see. We have that love has to extend to every everything and everybody. And then we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of accepting the candy from the nice stranger that wants us to get in this car and go off with him. It's so easy to, 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 to get, it, get that candy and, and get attached to that candy, and then, and then we're, 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 we're trapped into, it, into a spiral that we can't. It's often very difficult to get out of. So I think you all know when that, when that temptation comes up, especially, of course, with white privilege, it's the candy's even bigger and shinier and better. <clears throat> but um, I think as Buddhists, we have to do both those things, both put our, keep ourselves in position as, as, as an everyman and to feel one with every man and to, and to let people that you meet know that you know that you feel that way about them just by the way that you talk to them, the way that you address them, the way that you uh, look at them, just to, to project that that feeling of, of equanimity. Anyway, and of course, the, the, the main thing is that you have to bring it back and be, you have to love yourself that way too. Otherwise, you can't do it to others. So I think as, as a Buddhist, that's our main, our main, our main goal is not to make two, not to make self and other, not to make good and bad, not to make right and wrong. Thank you, Paul. Uh, very, very well said, very helpful. Uh, just to add that one of the things that as white, as a white person that, you know, this year teaches, can teach us is that for a black, I'll say a black man going out on the street, um, if when stopped by a policeman, it's very different than if I'm stopped by a policeman as a white man. And that's just a reality and just to, and so I feel the pain of that for, for black people. And, but what you said about how we, how we see ourselves and how we treat everyone, uh, it's important. Anyway, thank you. Uh, other other comments, responses, reflections. Hey, Ben. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Tell again. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about the types of 
privilege that I'm afforded as a white cisgendered man um, that I don't even, I'm not even necessarily asking for. And I'm trying, I've been trying lately to think about it in terms of the Bodhisattva precepts, especially the precept of not taking what is not given. And I'm trying to think of it as like not accepting what you don't want. Like, so for instance, I mean, of course, if I'm walking down the street, a police officer is going to treat me differently than he would treat a black man. But if I walk into a classroom for the first time, my students are going to look at me and afford me a different kind of attention and respect than they would afford a BIPOC person, a gender nonconforming person. They're giving me something that I didn't necessarily ask for. They're giving me something that I'm not sure that I necessarily earned in any way. And I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, and that's something that like, that's coming at me. It's like the obverse, right? Fanon talked about, Franz Fanon talked about how the fact of blackness preceded him, right? That blackness was already shaping people's reactions to him before he stepped into a room. And the privilege that adheres to white male cisgendered subjectivity, like is already there before I'm there. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think maybe I'm just, maybe it's just to become more aware of that and maybe to sort of like figure out ways of interrogating people. Why are you giving me this gift? <laughs> I, why, why are you assuming that I am deserving of this gift? Can I say something? Please. I, it's it's inevitable. It's it's that that's going to happen, and and you know it, it depends on a lot of different things. But you don't have to grab it and take it to the bank and cash in on it. You just let it happen. Let it roll over you. It's gonna. It's, it's life is not fair. Life is not. There's there's lots of things. Lots of for karmic reasons. There's lots of things that are unfair. But you don't have to believe in them and say, "Oh wow, I have this privilege of being special." So I can, you know, I can take it to the bank and cash in on it, or I can do this, or I can do that. Just don't don't get caught by it. That's the that's the main thing. But you can't fight it. You have to accept that that's who you are. You are that, and that's. But but you don't have to like parlay it into something bigger. David Ray has his hand up. David. Thanks. Um, ben, I love what you're saying about, about white privilege, the, the Peggy McCracken, you know, that the, there's a famous article by Peggy McCracken about, about white privilege and all the ways that, that I go through my day and being white means I don't have to deal with all kinds of, of problems. And so, yeah, what, what, what to do with that? So I feel like there's no way I can interrogate that away, but a thing that I can do is I, I can, there, there are subtle ways that I can leverage it. Um, as, as a professor, as an academic, as somebody who is looked at as an authority. So every year I teach uh, um, uh, an extension course in our graduate extension program. And this, this year I have the word race in the title. I mean, it's a literature course, but I'm reading Derek Walcott, which is, you know, a, a, a Nobel Prize winning poem by, by a man of color. Um, and I, I would hold it up against, you know, John Milton or, or, or another, you know, great 
English language reception of, of classical antiquity. And I think that matters. On, on, the, on the issue of gender, being cisgender, I put my pronouns on a syllabus now. I put, you know, I want to be called David and my pronouns are he, him, his. And, you know, a lot of people on the right are super angry about that. And, and, and they understand that means a different relationship to gender. That means I'm saying my maleness, that's one way of being here. It's not the default value. You know, white is not the default value. Male is not the default value. Straight is not. Well, I mean, it is, but 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 I I can I don't I don't want to take a step back from my privilege because I can't. But I can use my authority where where I can to promote um, to promote openness and and to promote to to, to cultivate excellence from you know pe- people who are not white and not male. I think Alex has had his hand up also. Thank you. Alex. Um, I, I just wanted to, to add on to this thread of the conversation because I, I think it's really important and really great. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, when I think about all of the privilege that I have, um, I try and think about how I can use that for good, right? Like you see, you know, if you're, a white person and you see a person of color getting pulled over by the cops, you can use your privilege as a white person to take out your camera and record them. And they're not going to do anything to you because you're white. Um, and I think that comes from like, you know, we, we just need to be clear on this question of privilege and maybe I should use I statements. I'm clear when I think about privilege, it's not that I want to get rid of my privilege. It's that I want everyone to have my privileges. Ed, is your hand up? Ed. Can you hear me? Yes. You know, I'm always, I'm always a, a little alert. I'm always, I don't know what privilege is. I'm not sure what it is. I think there's different varieties of privilege. I think there's a social privilege attached to certain ethnicities. And there's, there's, but there's many personal, uh, uh, acquaint, the, the, being acquainted with truth is also a kind of a privilege. And I think mm-hmm. certain times social privileges will deny us access to truth. I mean, um, I think of the writings of Flannery O'Connor and back in uh, Savannah, back in the thirties or the forties or the fifties or the sixties. And I think of, uh, of um, James Baldwin's comment on Tony Morrison's beloved as being an allegory on truth, primarily an allegory on truth. And um, uh, I also want to mention, since Tygen since had mentioned a number of speakers, Claire Pearson is speaking on Toni Morrison's notion of haunting and possession this February 5th. And she's a scholar. She's done great work in ethics. And so I would encourage anybody who's interested uh, on that subject to, to consider joining that Zoom uh, lecture. Where is she speaking? She, she's, she used to participate in Ancient Dragon this uh, maybe you could put that in the chat or. Uh, yes, I'll do that now. Okay, thank you. All right. I'd like to hear it. It'd be good. Thank you. Thank you.
Yes, uh, Jokai has his hand up. Hi, good evening. Um, I was wondering if you could speak on how Martin, a- Martin Luther King was able to uh, have compassion and love the enemy, his enemies, even those who who did him harm, who have you know, in the black community, how was he able to overcome those sort of, uh, yeah. Well, um, one of his main practices was civil disobedience. And that was a very, it's a very strong practice. It's been a while since I've done it myself, but to get to but it was a mass practice during the early '60s civil rights movement. People sitting in and sit in, in uh, uh, lunch counters, um, famously John Lewis and many others, walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, uh, just to be uh, in the face of. Um, uh, I mean, and, and it, it went back to Gandhi in India, and uh, uh, anyway, it's it just to uh, say no to, um, and, and, and more recently in the environmental movement uh, in this country, um, climate movement, to uh, just entering the Vietnam War, uh, just to. Um, sit down and block uh, business as usual. But that's, um, it's a way of not uh, not acting violently, but just saying, please stop uh, preventing us from uh, using your buses or preventing us from sitting at your, at your lunch counter or uh, without, uh, without being aggressive, but with, uh, but showing, the, just showing the aggression of others. That's just one example. Uh, I think he, uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, I think he saw, he talked about, um, he, there's a famous letter from the, from the Birmingham jail where he, uh, he was imprisoned and he uh, talked to about the, uh, the, uh, other pastors who were criticizing him for being in jail. And he said, why aren't you in jail? You know, that, uh, that to have to speak, uh, I talked a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple of nights before the uh, terrorist assault on the Capitol about the the problem of uh, the Congress and uh, speaking truth to power um, so that was one way that, that that was actually an expression of love, you know, that he wasn't, uh, it, was, it was the opposite of what happened on January 6th, where this, this group of terrorists broke into the Capitol and they were, they were destroying things. They were clearly uh, out to cause damage and to uh, cause physical harm to Congress people. It's just, it's very, for, it's, it's just, it's actually very lucky that they didn't. Uh, some of the Capitol Police managed to prevent that. Um, it almost happened. Uh, but but um, just to um, say no to harm. So I think we have to now find how do we 
not hate the terrorists, the people who are the the um, you know the the uh, the uh, I don't know what to call I don't know what words to call them I can I can use strong words to call them and and to call them various names fascists and terrorists and they and those are I think those are true words to describe the people who were who broke into the Capitol but also it's not, it's not about hating them it's about uh, they've been misguided and. Uh, I hope that they are held accountable, but it's not about personally hating them. It's about how do we, and and especially for the people who still support Mr. Trump and and, and that whole cult, um, it's not that it's it's not about enemies. This is really hard. But how do we actually try and help them to see that actually this was a fair election? Mr. Biden won the election uh, that we have we have had in this country uh, something of the rule of law for for uh, you know since the late 1700s. Uh, people who are causing harm, we don't have to hate them. We can try and hold them accountable and stop them. Uh, this, so this was this. I think this is the spirit of what Dr. King was talking about. Uh, I don't know if that uh, responds well to your to your question, but that's what I'm wrestling with now. Maybe somebody else this uh, oh. comment. Yeah, Ben oh. had his hand up, and I also saw Ko's hand up. Ko, no. maybe you could. Yeah. The one um, phrase, I mean, the, the the term that's been coming up for me is reparations. And um, I, I'm often it's it's a monetary thing we think of it being because of of the economic um, inequalities that that have been perpetuated, and I think that that's an aspect of it, but. I, I I really, I was delighted when I realized um, that the term repair is in reparations. It's, it's um, trying to heal and to, to, to repair the, the, the harm that has been done. And one of the things that came out of the, um, the assault on the Capitol that was very moving to me was the congressperson um, from uh, New Jersey who was cleaning up and people told him, Oh, there are maintenance people to do that. You you don't have to do that, but he he felt called to be part of those who would who would clean up um, what was precious to him, which was the capital. And I, I think about you know being the people who pick up trash in a neighborhood that's trashed, and to 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 do those sorts of things that are in our path to do to repair. So thank you. Thank you, Co. I uh, think of um, cases of people who've been seriously wronged, who don't want money, but they just want an apology. Ben. 
Um, yeah, I was just going to say on the question of, you know, how to, to, to deal with um, people who we don't agree with. Um, seems like there's this basic Buddhist insight, right? That there, there is no me, there is no I. I'm, I'm a conjunction of causes and effects. I have no substantial I-ness. So there's also no they, right? There's no them for me to hate because there's no me and there's no them. Um, there are actions that people do. Those actions can have negative effects, can have positive effects, can have neutral effects. There are things that people can say that can have negative effects. Um, they're also caused by other effects. So it seems that we're called to critique actions when those actions have negative effects without imagining the that, that there is sort of a, a they that is permanent for us to dislike. And I know that sounds at once like really simple and like almost impossible to do in practice. Thank you. David Ray. Um, another thing, um, response to your question, Jokai, about, about forgiving enemies is um, a really impressive example and, and, and teachings of, of Jesus. And I say this as, as a former Christian and somebody who, who no longer is, you know, defined by affiliation with that that tradition, and, and um, I tend to have a lot of negative thoughts and attitudes about that religion, which happens to be the dominant religion in this, in this culture. And that's one thing that, that Martin Luther King reminds me of, the, the liberatory power um, of, of Christianity. And uh, I think that when I, when, I, <laughs> when I allow myself to feel contempt or aversion uh, toward Christianity, I'm, I'm kind of the problem. I'm kind of being a stereotypical, you know, hyper-woke liberal person. And um, you know, the, the other thing, uh, I think this is related. I, I recently heard a speech, uh, a quote from a, a speech that Hillary gave in 2016 saying, you know, you know, Donald Trump is taking crazy fringe um, individuals and he is broadcasting, he is tweet, retweeting them to 11 million people, and he is radicalizing people who would not otherwise be radicalized. And, and I think that it's so crucial for us to spend the next four years making life better and making, uh, making a place for, for respect for uh, people, for, for, for people who, are, who are laborers um, who feel who feel beleaguered and who who are susceptible to being radicalized? That's I believe that's the origin of the of, of the storming of the Capitol. It's a combination of um, feeling economic distress, feeling feeling uh, you know not having a place at the table, and then being radicalized by by, the, by this crazy stuff that, that our president has, has been disseminating. Anyway. David Weiner. Yeah. Um, I'm just, you know, hearing things and it's taken me two weeks to come to this point, but I'm finally getting back to the sixth and seventh precepts. 
that I do not find fault in others. I do not dwell on the faults of others. And I do not praise myself at the expense of others. And I think there's a certain trap that we can feel uh, going to David's point, uh, David Ray's point, that these people are evil and we write them off. And that's something that politically we shouldn't do, but also as Buddhists, it's not in our precept to, to dwell on the faults of others. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. And our approach to an extent is saying not that these people are, quote, evil. You know, their actions are not acceptable. You know, I, I will not accept the actions. But the people aren't evil. The people are, in a sense, in a, living in a world of delusion. And how can I, as an individual, reach out to them in, in equanimity to say, you're hurting. I hear you're hurting. How can I be with you? How can I help you? How can I get rid of the hurt? And that's what it takes. Um, King trained at the, uh, I'm forgetting the name of it now, the, uh, the folk school in Tennessee, forget the first name, Highlander, Highlander yes. Folk School. And there, the, the ethos was you can never disagree to, di- you can never agree to disagree. That, that, that concept was not allowed. What you had to do was find where you had mutual agreement and bring out the best in each other. And that's what the beloved community is and what King called for the beloved community. Find out where we agree and bring out the best in each other rather than pointing fingers and deriding each other. And I think that's an important concept we have to do. And believe me, I've been wrestling with that for the last 10 days, very difficult. And finally this morning in my chanting the Emijuku Kanan-gyo and doing my well-being list, I was able to say again, you know, I feel for Donald Trump and for those people who support him that they have such pain in their hearts that they do such despicable acts. If they had joy in their hearts, they wouldn't be doing despicable acts. They have pain in their heart. And so the question is, how can I as a person find a way when I run into somebody like that, or I know somebody like that, how can I be there for them in their pain so that they can let go of their pain? And I think that's an important you know, thing for us as Buddhists to do and as people politically to do. Thank you, David. I, I want to make a distinction there. I, I, I don't disagree with you, but part of what I was trying to say is that um, in terms of holding people accountable socially without hatred, but um, uh, there's a huge difference to me between the you know people, the Trump voters, and I think you're right that uh, that uh, he appealed to many working people who've been marginalized, who feel discarded and abandoned, who are who our society and economy has has abandoned, um, uh, and were vulnerable to his manipulations, and 
on the one hand, what, who I sympathize with very much, uh, and the people who actually did the manipulation, which is uh, some of the Congress people who, uh, and, uh, who, were, who were enabling and supporting uh, the terrorist actors, uh, who sh- should be, he- and, and Mr. Trump himself, I guess, who I, who I believe should be held accountable and that we can never get past this and actually heal until there's accountability for them. So I was, in what I said, I was trying to uh, make that distinction and, and you, help, you just helped me clarify that. So thank you. We are getting close to time. This is a discussion that is, you know, this discussion of <sighs> this uh, problem of race that goes back 400 years and, and the, um, and these people who, who were involved in sacking our capital and who threatened to do it again and to do more or other versions of it, um, you know, are trying to enforce some, uh, a white society, basically. Um, and uh, this is going to be an ongoing danger. And uh, we have to face it. And I think continuing to look at this problem is something that is part of our, is required of us as citizens and uh, as Buddhists too, how do we look at it from the point of view of our practice? So we'll have opportunities to talk about this more. And I really appreciate all the comments that have been made and maybe that's enough for tonight. Um, We'll have our closing Bodhisattva vows and um, announcements, and then for people who want to hang out further uh, uh, online, uh, uh, just informally, we can do that. But uh, some people maybe want to uh, leave, and so uh, wait if you would lead us in the four bodhisattva vows. We'll do that now. Sure. Give me one moment. I'll put those words up in case anyone would like them. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.